Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and sociology. This week's topic is parents are paying for the party. Our guest today is Laura Hamilton, who is a sociologist at the University of California, Merced, and the author of multiple books, including Broke, Who's Paying for the Party, and Parenting by Degree. Laura is interested in how socioeconomic status influences who goes to college, how students perform there, their job prospects, and their marriage market. This discussion should be very provocative. There is much to cover, so buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer it free of charge. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe from our website for weekly emails so that you can continue to enjoy this content. Let's now begin with Laura's six-minute opening remarks. Thanks for having me, Larry. The past half century has brought dramatic reductions in public commitments to higher education in the U.S., but defunding has not hit all colleges and universities evenly. The result is what some have referred to as a separate and unequal system of higher education, in which students from low-income households who are disproportionately racially marginalized attend resource-poor post-secondary schools. In Broke, my co-author Kelly Nielsen and I document the consequences of public funding cuts on schools serving large percentages of marginalized students. The book uses the University of California system as a test case, but the patterns are widely applicable. When states divest in higher education, universities increase tuition and fees. Schools also turn to private sources of revenue to help compensate for lost state support. Endowments, non-resident tuition, donors, auxiliary services, and corporate partners have become much more central to public university budgets as states pull back. Our focal schools in Broke, the University of California Merced and the University of California Riverside, do the lion's share of work with marginalized student populations for the system. Both schools are majority Latinx and majority low income, and both schools have very little access to sources of private revenue that universities use to compensate for state disinvestment. Indeed, Merced's foundation receives less than 1% of the private support that Berkeley's foundation takes in during a given year. University wealth is nationally concentrated at schools that serve very few numbers of marginalized students. The gaps by student race are, in fact, larger than the gaps by student class. If you look at endowment dollars per student by student race at four-year publics across the nation, you'll see a clear pattern over time. In the mid-1980s, endowment dollars per student were very similar, regardless of student race. Over time, as post-secondary schools came to rely more and more on private funding sources, disparities sharpened such that Asian and white students are located at resource-rich schools where the average endowment dollars per student are between $15,000 and $25,000, whereas Latinx, Black, and Indigenous students are enrolled in schools where there are fewer endowment dollars, closer to around $10,000 per student. The chronic underfunding of racially disadvantaged students relative to racially advantaged students has been described by some scholars as troublingly reminiscent of redlining. Redlining is a series of discriminatory practices that systematically deny public services or support to residents of certain areas based on their race and ethnicity. 
The term is most commonly used to refer to the fact that areas where Black residents lived were deemed risky investments, making it harder for Black families and individuals to obtain mortgages and other types of loans. The redlining metaphor is fitting for today's post-secondary system, as colleges and universities that serve marginalized students routinely and systematically have more limited access to funding and resources. Schools serving disadvantaged students are often treated like redlined neighborhoods and that they have less access to various forms of financial support. These schools take hits in both status and ranking calculations that often determine access to private resources. They may also receive less resources from the state. Universities that work with marginalized populations are being literally starved for resources. We document on-the-ground consequences of institutional wealth gaps for vibrant, sharp, and driven Latinx and Black youth from low-income families. We describe classrooms with broken furniture, missing ceiling tiles, dust-encrusted air vents, wires coming out of walls, floors covered with dirty footprints and leaves, and filthy dust and chairs. We saw academic advisors with caseloads of 750 students per advisor, double that of the national average. We found that counseling services, even for urgent cases, had a three-month wait. These disparities are deeply troubling. College, particularly public college, is often thought of as the great equalizer, particularly for students from underrepresented backgrounds. However, unequal post-secondary funding leads to qualitatively different educational experiences for racially marginalized students relative to their more privileged peers. You are a professor of sociology at UC Merced, and it's a brand new school that opened in 2005. Many of our listeners do not know about this university. Tell us about this new University of California institution. UC Merced is in the Central Valley of California. It is an area that is very underserved by the state. Most of the wealth in California is concentrated on the coasts. And a lot of the infrastructure development, education, healthcare, business is on the coast as well. This particular University of California campus has been a long time in the making. So it was discussed as part of the master plan of California higher education in 1960 to have a University of California campus here But due to a lot of the inequities I just mentioned, it took a really long time for the campus to actually come online. It serves a largely disadvantaged student body. So around 60% Latinx, largely first-generation, low-income students, large number of Pell Grant recipients. The school has played an important role in outreach to this region of the state, but it also serves disadvantaged students from the southern and northern parts of the state as well. I looked up some demographic facts, and the student body is 99% from in-state. The university has around 8,000 students. Nearly 5,000 are Latino, 1,500 are Asian, 350 are African American, and 650 are white. And nearly everyone that applies gets accepted. It is basically open admission. Normally, when we talk about privilege, historically we describe it as white versus black. But there are very few white students who attend this school. This is predominantly a Latino and Asian school. What is it like teaching in a university dominated by Latinos and Asians? 
I want to emphasize that these are Southeast Asian students who are largely from disadvantaged Asian groups. Often when we talk about Asian students, there is a perception that we're talking about those who have a great deal of privilege. But in terms of Asian access to resources, the group is pretty bifurcated with East Asian students having more family wealth and those who are Southeast Asian having a lot less family wealth and looking very similar to my low-income Latinx students here at UC Merced. It's great. I love teaching here. I'm white and I had a huge learning curve to teaching at UC Merced. The students would challenge me in the classroom. The sociology of education literature and a lot of my prior research was white students and the students here were just having none of it. They were really interested in thinking about intersections between class and race and not just black-white disparities. And they were really clear to point out the ways in which their racial backgrounds and experiences meant that they brought unique things to the table. The students at UC Merced in sociology understood fundamental inequities and the ways in which systems of power intersected in ways that were really challenging for students at Indiana University, where I was previously teaching. We started at a much higher level in sociology because of that understanding and awareness. I can't actually imagine teaching a different student body at this point. In your book, Broke, you mentioned that UC Merced is not a major research institution like UC Berkeley. Why is research relevant? Because the student body is seeking a decent education that supports underprivileged kids. We talk about new universities as these schools that are striving for a research profile that rely strongly on students that have been underrepresented in higher education. The school produces an enormous amount of research for its size. My department alone has something like $10 million in grants. That's actually been one of the struggles is to convey the importance of having a research institution to which students from underrepresented communities typically don't have great access to. One of the challenges is to balance research with the student population in an era where you have reduced state funding because Merced has been trying to grow in about the worst possible historical moment (laughs) for higher education growth. Almost immediately after the school was founded, we hit a massive recession and higher education spending over that period nationally has really taken a dive. So it's always been a bit of a fight to be able to do the research and the teaching at a high level with limited resources. I sent my kids to private schools in New York City, and I gave money to the school to provide scholarships for underprivileged kids to attend that school. I'm not sure that gift had the best bang for the buck. Does it make more sense to give money to a school that has predominantly underprivileged children, where the same funds could have helped many kids, and not just a handful, that will get access to one of the best private schools? The same goes for university philanthropy. I gave money to my alma mater. Does it make more sense to give money to a local community college or UC Merced that helps poor students? It seems to me that sending it to institutions that are serving large numbers of students from underrepresented groups is the way to go. And the schools that are serving large numbers are really not receiving 
much, if any, large dollar donations to support the student population that they have. Students who are attending privileged institutions are likely to graduate. They're likely to do well. The students who are attending less resource institutions are every bit as talented as most of the students that attend prestigious elite schools, but they haven't had opportunities to perform in supported ways. I've watched these students over time, and I see when there is adequate support what they can do. Previously on What Happens Next, we had Zvi Galil speak. He is the former head of Georgia Tech's computing department. Zvi set up an online school for Georgia Tech that specializes in computer science that has 100,000 students. It's relatively inexpensive at $8,000 per year per student, and the school allows students to both live at home and work to make some needed cash. What do you think about technology radically reducing the price of education that makes it easier for underprivileged kids to enjoy most of the benefits of a university education while living at home and earning money on the side? I've done a great deal of work on online education in more recent years with my postdocs, Christian Smith and Amber Villalobos, and my co-author, Charlie Eaton. We have the Higher Education Race in the Economy Lab at UC Merced that has been focused on just this issue. I don't know anything about the particular program that you're mentioning, but unfortunately, research using national data both on institutions and their enrollments and also individual data on students, suggests that online programs produce worse graduation outcomes and worse student debt payment outcomes for students if they're attending online versus in-person. There is probably a lot of variation in terms of how students are going to do online depending on how the program is set up, but most public education programs are outsourced. Online education is outsourced to online program managers, which are for-profit companies often backed by private equity or venture capital that run these programs for universities. And there's significant evidence to suggest that these programs are not high quality and end up exploiting marginalized students. I am not particularly optimistic about technology as the silver bullet. Not all online programs are the same. Georgia Tech is ranked number five in the country for undergraduate computer science, and hopefully this outstanding public university can scale up to help its online students. I want to change topics to two of your previous books, Paying for the Party and Parenting by Degree. You did an ethnographic analysis of female students at the University of Indiana main campus at Bloomington who lived on your dormitory floor where you were the RA. You initially did an ethnographic study of the students who lived on your RA floor, and then afterwards you did ethnographic work on the parents of the same students. Tell us about your findings. That research started with a dormitory floor of women There was a year of ethnography on the dormitory floor, and then there were interviews with students every year for five years. And then I did a sixth wave of interviews when they were 30. We were really interested in seeing how their social class trajectories were formed over a long period of time. 
There were a number of instances in which families were highly involved with what their students were doing on every level, social, educational, emotional, economic, this as a form of opportunity hoarding. It's understandable. I have a high level involvement in my kids' lives and I grapple with this too. To what extent am I extracting resources from institutions to support my already privileged, affluent white children? But Higher education institutions really want involved parents because they can outsource some of the responsibilities of making sure that students complete school, making sure that they move into career pathways that are really lucrative, the parent-university dynamic that encourages parents to be really involved such that the universities benefit and the parents engage in forms of opportunity hoarding makes sense, but it on the aggregate has some pretty negative consequences for students from families whose parents haven't attended college, don't have that knowledge, maybe don't feel welcome on college campuses. I sat through an orientation once where the leadership was talking to parents and they were saying, you probably remember this when you were in college. And I could just see parents' faces fall because a lot of them hadn't attended college and that made them feel like they didn't belong. Parents want to help their kids in almost all cases, but if it's not an experience you've had, you may feel out of your depth. One of the things my research suggests is that universities really need to think about how to scaffold and provide resources without expecting that level of parental involvement that's not really possible for all families. In one of my favorite scenes from your book, Paying for the Party, It's the first day of college at Indiana, and you walk into a room of a Jewish girl from Highland Park, Illinois, which is the suburb directly next to where I was raised. Her mother was unpacking her suitcase, and you asked, where's dad? And he was off at Home Depot buying supplemental lighting for the room. And the young woman student was sitting there on a bed watching her parents take care of the situation. And then her roommate arrived, and she was a first-generation college student from a rural farm town in Indiana. And she entered the room, threw her duffel bag on the bed, and just walked out. And you asked yourself at the time, I wonder which student will do better here at college, the pampered child with intense parental involvement or the student who will skin her knee and figure out stuff on her own. What did you find out? What you're describing is the intergenerational transmission of wealth. A lot of people think about higher education as the great equalizer. The problem is that that doesn't work quite that way. Parents are leveraging all kinds of capital, whether it's social connections to ensure their child gets access to a job, whether it's money to allow for geographic mobility. A lot of lower income students couldn't get to the labor markets where they would have the greatest bang for their buck on the skills that they had learned in higher education. It's also about marital networks access to someone who's equally privileged and you're going to consolidate your family wealth with his family wealth and then create a new generation of children. When I interviewed women at 30, the grandparents were already paying for the private schools of their kids' children. So it's many generations of wealth. Those processes often are not visible. People tend to make assumptions that The success of individuals is a function of their effort and abilities, and it ignores these forms of privilege that get laundered. In paying for the party, you introduced the term pink helicopters, and in parenting by degree, you added a second term called paramedic 
helicoptering. Tell us what you mean by these two terms and why they're important. The paramedic helicoptering could involve social elements that would be so severe as to derail a child from their path. But the pink helicopters were predominantly interested in producing a particular type of femininity. And the idea there was that for these women, their class reproduction projects were closely linked to their ability to be particular types of women. It's super gendered that these women would marry wealthy men and that their success would be predominantly through his success. Paramedic helicoptering was much more oriented to supporting a different model of professional women's success where they anticipated their daughters weren't going to marry into wealth, that instead the women's own accomplishments were pretty important for her class project and that she might meet a partner down the line who is similarly interested in professional pursuits. So they were kind of driven by different models of how you get to a certain class position in life, which led them to invest differently. If you're really thinking that the primary mode for mobility is marriage through a man, you're going to invest heavily in what she's wearing, who she knows, what she's doing socially. If you're thinking that her primary mobility mechanism or reproduction mechanism is through her own success, you're going to be there with a safety net to catch her if something throws her off a professional trajectory. The Princeton mom, Susan Patton, spoke on this podcast previously. She believes that finding the right spouse is the most important decision in life, and you shouldn't treat it like something that's just going to happen. You should take as much or more interest in finding your spouse as you do in your academic career or in your professional career. The Princeton mom opposes finding your life partner with dating apps or seeking out men at your local bar. She wants women to find a mate that has similar interests, educational attainment, and job prospects. Someone who has similar attitudes about maximizing cultural capital and intellectual pursuits. To do that, the best place to find that man is at the very university that you're attending right now. After you graduate, the boys you will meet are less likely to be intelligent and with poor job prospects. The Princeton mom encourages women to find 10 to 15 eligible bachelors while at the university, get their phone numbers and email addresses, and follow up with them after graduation. Laura, what do you think of the Princeton mom's advice? Well, one thing the Princeton mom is right about is that marriage is wildly important for people's class trajectories. It is very much the case that for women, if you look at national data, that marriage drives a lot of their class position. And it is also the case that when women are in the top 1% of income earners, it's almost always through their marriage to a man. Now, I would argue that that reflects a great degree of gender inequality in our society. I think that the kind of advice that she's giving works for people who are from affluent backgrounds. And it actually does not work even if you are at Princeton as a low-income student. Class consolidation happens through marriage precisely because people select people like themselves who have similar experiences, similar networks, meaning that a low-income student at Princeton, even if they were to take her advice, wouldn't work. (laughs) 
some of the things that she doesn't acknowledge and when she's talking is that her advice reproduces class and racial privilege in ways that are pretty insidious. I would also argue that for the women in my sample that did not take her advice, did not write down the numbers, weren't interested in doing that during college, they ended up just fine. <laughs> they, they did marry men who were successful and they were peer partners. So these were men who were more egalitarian, more interested in having a household structure that allowed for women to be equals. Princeton is very different than UC Merced. Looking at the gender breakdown at UC Merced, there are 9% more females than males. Top American universities have gender distribution, but everywhere else, there are a supermajority of women. What are the implications of this gender imbalance? Going back to the Indiana farm girl that you met on that very first day of college when you were an RA, her high school boyfriend drops out of college and she ends up transferring to Indiana's Valparaiso campus, where she graduates with a degree in nursing. She marries him and does not achieve the same economic status as her roommate from Highland Park, who met her banker spouse when she moved to Lincoln Park after graduation. In general, women are kicking ass and taking names in education in ways that men aren't. The fact that more privileged institutions have more gender, even distributions, I would highly suspect that there's some, I don't want to call it affirmative action for men, but they're very careful to ensure that there are equal distribution. Another thing that's going on here is that in underrepresented communities where folks are economically or racially marginalized, women are the ones that are more upwardly mobile. They are the ones that are leaving to go to college and their male peers are not. What this does create, as you aptly suggest, is a dynamic in which women who are disadvantaged tend to find themselves on college campuses without the men or the boys that they grew up with. This means that if they want to be upwardly mobile, they have to cut ties with the people, the places that feel comfortable with them. It's a really unfortunate and not okay choice to have to make, whereas privileged women are able to be in upwardly mobile spaces. They're able to connect with people who are in their networks, who follow them along to college. And so they are not making hard choices like, am I going to be with somebody that feels familiar and is from home? Or am I going to be successful in my career? Like, that's not a fair choice. So a lot of the less privileged women end up excluded from the social spaces in which privileged men are, and those partnerships are not really available to them. So they're more likely to be single and to try to find someone later in their professional careers, but they don't have the same access to partners that are equally educated and on the same kind of professional trajectory. In the second published book entitled Parenting by Degree, you interview the mothers and fathers of the students on the RA floor at Indiana. As a dad of college students, I was interested to see what the other dads had to say. What you found was that the mothers were much more involved than dads in the daughter's college experience. Mom gave advice about relationships, sorority parties, housing, vacations, and all daily interactions. Dad helped out when something broke. Tell us about dads helping daughters in college. The most successful fathers were those who were paramedics, where there was some safety net provided and parents would swoop in if there was an emergency, but there wasn't this constant hovering presence dictating every move that students made. 
in those families, dads were able to take as active a role as mothers. And they had really good relationships with their daughters. They were involved. They knew what was going on. In the case of the helicopter parents, the mothers did almost all the work and the fathers, as you noted, were fairly checked out. And in those households, the kind of relationship between the daughter and the father was more distant. My daughter is a second semester senior at the University of Pennsylvania. And before classes started this semester, my daughter said to me, Dad, it's my last semester in college. I know you've wanted me to take specific classes. I'm going to let you select one of my classes this semester. What'd you pick? I said, the question answers itself. It's my favorite class at Wharton. It's introduction to corporate finance. So she said, dad, I'll do it for you. I called her a few hours after that first class. And I said, how was it? And she said, I dropped it. I said, oh, come on, Hannah. This is it. This is the only thing I've asked you to do. And you gave it only 90 minutes and then abandoned the plan. She said, dad, what's your second favorite choice? I said, I don't know, investments. And she said, dad, it's at nine o'clock in the morning. Now, What's your third choice? And I said, how about legal studies? You can take a class in torts. And she said, fine. So at least it's something. It's not my first choice, but I think it's indicative of how limited the father's role in all of this. I had no influence on her choice of major. I don't have any influence on the curriculum or course selection. I'm rarely called upon for any advice. When you talk about equality and parental involvement, what are you talking about? I doubt that your wife probably has all that much involvement in curriculum either, to be honest. Probably most of what she's doing is fielding all questions that are about social dynamics, living logistics, emotional breakdowns. In paying for the party, you discuss the importance of choosing a major. Indiana has an excellent undergraduate business school, but they also offer business light courses and majors that frankly aren't that useful in the job market. You said that the university was not transparent with students as to the economic consequences of choosing a major that maximizes lifetime income. Parents can sometimes be helpful in navigating these minefields. Why does the university provide insufficient information about the monetary consequences of choosing a major? If you're wealthy enough and you have the right connections, you just want your kid to graduate. But most people, that is not the situation they're in. Families and students are trusting that the majors that are available at the university are appropriate, linked to career paths, and are going to be successful for their students. And so that's where you get that disconnect because universities are trying to bring in some students and some dollars and parents are trying to get their students to be stable and successful and that doesn't always match up. <laughs> Is there a tension within the school departments? I'll give you an example. At my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, Penn has four undergraduate schools, nursing, engineering, the College of Arts and Sciences, and the Wharton Business School. The students enrolled in the College of Arts and Sciences transferred to Wharton when they hear that the Wharton graduates have superior job prospects because of the business degree. The faculty in the liberal arts do not like it when their best and brightest transfer to the Wharton Business School. Since I graduated, the university has made it more difficult to transfer. Why aren't the needs of the students paramount and the faculty desires less important? Part of those tensions that you mentioned between departments over the loss of students have developed as funding models have shifted. The tension arises because the administration says, we are going to take resources from and never let you know units hire unless they get more students enrolled in their classes. And then it becomes like a fight over the students across campus. So that's a pretty bad dynamic. 
there's some emerging research that people with business degrees often end up moving into jobs where they're not actually using the skills that they earned in their business classes, but they're often drawing on skills they might have learned in classes that are writing heavy or communication heavy. There's a bit of mismatch between what skills people actually use in their jobs and what the degrees are. A lot of English majors, for example, would be very well suited for a fair number of business jobs. So there seems to be also just a mismatch between employer perception of what a worker needs and the hiring practices. I am sure that you're correct that English majors write better essays than the business school graduates, but they still earn multiples more. And I suspect that employers generally get it right and properly pay for performance. Yeah, for sure. That's the other thing we didn't mention. Students are accruing a lot of debt, and then you're an English major, and then you're making $25,000. You're paying back $50,000 or $100,000 of debt. The math does not add up. Laura, what are you optimistic about? I am optimistic about today's youth. I see these kids in the classroom, and I tell you, they are smart, they are resilient, they are questioning the way we've done things uh, in ways that challenge adults. They're figuring out how to make it even under pretty adverse circumstances. I hear a lot of griping about new generations. That's not what I feel at all. I feel optimistic about their prospects, even in the face of hardship. Thanks to Laura Hamilton for joining us today. If you missed last week's show on the opioid crisis, check it out. Our speaker was Gerald Posner, who wrote the book Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Gerald spoke about the conflict that pharmaceutical firms face with their desire for advancing public health while maximizing profits. We will also discuss the advancement of pain management care, fears of addiction, and the success and failures of OxyContin. I would now like to make a plug for next week's podcast with Dan Willingham, who is a professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Virginia. He is the author of the new book entitled Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. If you enjoy today's podcast, please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.